This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In a domestic incident early in the morning of April 3rd, 2011, Crystal stabbed Reginald Day in the abdomen one time. But Mr. Day survived the stabbing and was taken to the hospital, where he died 13 days later. Crystal has always maintained that she stabbed Mr. Day in self-defense after he initiated a violent attack on her. Crystal was convicted of the second-degree murder of Reginald Day in 2013 and sentenced to 14 to 18 years in prison. So is Crystal the real victim here, or did the jury get this one right? Was it the stabbing that caused Mr. Day's death, or a mistake made by the hospital where he was being treated? This is episode 30, the Crystal Gale Mangum Update. Hi, Amy. Hi, Megan. Do you remember covering this case way back in uh, six months ago or when, you know, we were kind of 15 episodes in? I was just going to say, do you remember what episode number it was? It was episode 15. Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah, it's good. I was going to announce that so other people could look at this as well, but you remember this one. Yes. In today's episode, it's going to be a little unique and a little different in that we're updating the story and airing an interview I conducted with Crystal Mangum from the North Carolina prison where she's incarcerated, which we'll get to shortly. It was after our original episode aired, I was contacted by someone close to Mangum, one of her supporters, who asked if we would review outside reports on the case that have been conducted since she was convicted, and would we speak to Crystal to help aid in our final conclusions? And of course, you know, we considered it and said, yes, we'd love to hear from her and hear what she has to say. So today we're going to hear that interview between me and Mangum. And then, Amy, I was hoping afterwards you and I could discuss our thoughts. If you haven't already done so, I would encourage everyone to go back and listen to episode 15 for the original story and case details, and then come back and see if your opinion has changed. I won't need to tell you the entire story again because Crystal is actually going to tell you herself in a couple of minutes. So without further ado, here's Crystal Gail Mangum. This call is from Crystal Mangum, an inmate at Anson Correctional Center. This call will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, press 5 now. To decline this call, thank you for using Global Tell. Crystal, would you mind if we began with the discussion of the events that led up to your conviction? Uh, more specifically, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with uh, Reginald Day? I, um, I met Reginald in December of 2010. And it was after another case that um, he that he saw that he, he felt like uh, injustice was done on my behalf. So he volunteered to take me in, me and my children, and um, in exchange for me helping him get caught up on his rent. Things have been really difficult for me up until that point because of the um, negative publicity that I received from the Duke of Cross case. So I couldn't get a, an apartment on my own. I couldn't find a job. Every time I, I tried to go for a job interview, 
I, for example, I went for an interview to uh, work for Blue Cross and Blue Shield Insurance Company. And I had all the credentials. I had gone to college. I was good at communication skills. I retired from the military. So everything was going good. But then someone recognized me as the district prosecutor, and they had a, a conference for a short period of time while I waited in the um, lobby. And the guy was really nice about it. He came out and apologized. He said, well, we um, can't hire you. And I said, well, what's the reason that everything else checks out? And he said, well, you didn't tell us about your past. And I said, well, what does that have to do with my job? And he says, well, honestly, the things that they said about you, we're not sure that we're able to, to trust you. Wow. That was the closest that I come to receiving employment. So during the time when I met Reginald, that seemed like my only option. And I did want to revert back to, uh, I guess, using my, my body as a means of uh, providing for me and my children. But that ended up, it ended up that that was the situation that I was in with, with Reginald. And it started out as, you know, I'll pay the rent and I'll have to get caught up and we'll just keep everything platonic. But eventually, um, he requested sex of me and I, and I gave in to him and it became more than that. So I was pressured by not being able to tell him no because I lived with him. And I was really depressed at that time because I felt like, well, this is my only option. Like, where's my life leading? Like, if I'm never going to get an opportunity to be anything else other than what they've labeled me as or what I've allowed myself to be in the past, how am I going to ever move forward? So I had started saving my money, and I started back escorting. And I was saving my money up. And Reginald knew this, but he was very jealous about it. So this created another issue because he wanted the money for his rent, but on the other hand, he didn't want me doing um, performing favors for other men because he was jealous. Uh, so he would go into these fits of rage where he was fighting against his own desires, I guess, you know, wanting money versus wanting his, his so-called girlfriend to himself. Right, I see. Yeah, so the night of April the 2nd going into April the 3rd was his breaking point. He saw me talking to an officer outside of the apartment, and I didn't know at the time, but I was told later that he was getting his cousin to shoot heroin into his back, and that's why he had those sores on his back. He was telling me that they came from his work from being a painter, that he was getting scars and stuff. And I'm kind of naive when it comes to drugs because I've never done them. But I was hearing a lot of rumors later that he was addicted to heroin as well as alcohol. Wow, okay. So that would have explained a lot of um, the anger and the, uh, I don't know, personality changes that I experienced with him that night. He went into this rage, and he said, well, I was told that you were bringing other men into the apartment. And I said, well, where is all this coming from? And we were discussing this while the police officer was standing in the parking lot. He said, that's it. I'm done with you. He said, get over here right now so we can talk. And, and I'm tired of you talking to me, and I'm done with this. Either you stop talking to him and get over here and talk to me, or we're done. And I said, oh, let's you just calm down. So the officer told me, well, y'all take that in the house. I don't want y'all arguing outside. And I said, well, 
I've never seen him act like this. I knew the officer from the past, so I was able to address him by his first name. Mm-hmm. He said, um, Carlos, I'm afraid of Reginald tonight because he's never acted like this in this in this way. Like, he's had rage before, but he's never done it, like, in front of people and to this extent. Like, he was literally yelling to the top of his lungs. Did the officer respond to you when you said that you were afraid? No. He just told me to go in the house and, and try to calm him down. Got it. Okay. Keep going, please. So we get into the house, and he looks outside, and he's waiting for the officer to leave. So as soon as the officer leaves, then he comes back, and he says, well, I don't want you talking to me, and I, want, I don't want you bringing me into the house. And I said, well, I'm not bringing me into the house. He said, well, I, somebody told me that you were, and I don't believe you. He said, you're already sleeping with these men. I'm leaving. I'm not. I'm not dealing with this. I'm. I'm leaving. And he said, "You're not going anywhere. You're not going out to sleep with these men. You're not going to." I said, "I'm not going to sleep with men. I'm with my kids that are around the corner, um, at my friend's house." And he said, "You're not leaving. You're not going out of this house." He said, "I'm tired." He said, "Don't you understand that I love you? Don't you love me?" And I said, "Yes, I love you, but not in that way." And then that's when he slapped me, and that's when things went downhill from there. Okay. When I started to tell him how I moved in with him, and how things escalated, and I felt like I didn't want to be there anymore. He hit me, and I fell, and I tried to get back up. But as soon as I got up and started arguing with him, he hit me again. So I ran to the back of the apartment, and. He wrestled with me, and he hit me a few more times, and I landed on the bed, and he um, he got on top of me, and we, we said some more words back and forth. As soon as he got up, I went into the bathroom, and I locked myself in the bathroom. I don't I guess I was in there maybe about five or ten minutes when I heard banging on the door, and he said, open the door. I know you're calling me in. I know you're in there calling me in. And I said, I'm, I'm not, I said, I'm, I'm, I need help. I said, you have my phone. I said, I can't call anybody. And the next thing I knew, the door flew open and he grabbed me up by my hair and mm. pulled me out of the bathroom. He said that nobody could have me but him and that he knew I was trying to leave him and he knew that I was saving money up to leave him. He threatened to pour boiling water on my face and... Mm. He started choking me, so I ran. I well, I I crawled behind the mattress, and he left. So I just laid there, and I was trying to figure out a way to get from the from the bedroom to the door because instead of there's only one way to the door, and that's through the narrow hallway leading from the bedroom. The only way I was able to get to the door was to go past him. So I was just sitting there crying, and he came back and started throwing knives at the at me from the mattress. And he said, come out, come out of there, come out of there, and kept yelling at me. Sorry, can I ask you a question? You had said that you were hiding behind the mattress, was that correct? Yeah. Was, was the mattress on the floor for some reason, or off the bed? Yeah, um, when, I, when we came into the bedroom from the living room, when the argument first started, I lay on the bed after he hit me the second time in the bedroom. I fell back onto the bed. And when I fell back, he tried to pull me off of the bed. 
And so when he tried to pull me off on my feet, I grabbed the mattress and I came off with the mattress and then I ran into the bathroom. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's been so long ago and I try to block these things out. So it's, it's like when I tell what happened, it's like rope. Like it's, I try to separate my emotions from what really happened because it's... It, upsets me so bad afterwards because I start to see things the way they happen. Even after I talk about it, it's really hard. I'm sure. I'm sorry. Take your time. Yeah, so he pulled me out of the bathroom and when he was pulling my hair, I could feel my hair actually separating from my scalp. It was very painful. Um, And I was trying to like grab his hand while he was pulling my hair. I think that was, to me, that was more traumatic than even the, the hitting because I could actually feel the ripping like of my scalp while he was pulling my hair and uh, there was nothing I could do to get him to stop. So, um, I tried to hide behind the mattress. I didn't know what to do. Um, my first thought were, were my kids. They were about three blocks away uh, from the apartment at a friend's house. So the only thing that I kept thinking about was, oh, my God, what if my kids don't get to see me alive? What if they never get to see me again? At the time, Kayla was three, Anna was 10, and RJ was 11. And I just I was trying to, like, picture my friend telling my kids, like, your mom is dead and you're never going to see her again. I just couldn't imagine my kids being without me because I'm all that they've ever known. I've always tried to do my best to make sure they had everything that they needed and that they, even that they wanted. And so I just couldn't imagine life without them. Right. I've been under the mattress trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this apartment. Um, so he's yelling at me, um, come out, come out of there. Um, Come out of there. We need to talk. Um, I opened the house to you. I was good to you and your kids. I um, I let you have my my room and my bed, and I slept on the couch. And you're gonna do this to me? And it was just I looked into his eyes, and that I could I couldn't see him. Like all I could see was anger. Right. And then I I saw that he had the knives that were in the kitchen. Um, he had the whole wooden block with all the knives on there. And he just started throwing them at me. And um, he said, um, go ahead and duck. Go ahead and duck. You can't hide from me. I'm going to find you. And next thing I know, he's pushing the mattress to the side. And then he straddles me and gets on top of me. And he said, I'm going to pour boiling water on your face. And nobody's going to be able to recognize you because you don't do this to me. Um, You betrayed me. And I was good to you. He said, um... If you can't, if you can't be loyal to me, um, you don't deserve to live. After all that I've done for you, mm. so it just seemed like the natural thing to do to pick up one of the knives and jab him in the side with it to try to get away from him. So I stabbed him in the side with the knife, and I try to get up. When I try to get up, he grabbed my shirt and tore my shirt um, as I was trying to get away from him. And I stumbled a couple of times, but I was able to get out of the door. He chased me 
down the steps and through the woods. Um, and when I was on the other side of the woods, I looked back and I heard the leaves rustling, but I couldn't see them. So I just kept running and I went to my friend's house and knocked on the door and she opened the door and I, I was just crying. I couldn't tell her what was going on because I was so hysterical. And she said, oh, my God, Crystal, I knew something bad was happening. I just knew it. I couldn't sleep. The kids couldn't sleep. And um, I just went into her apartment and fell on the floor. And I guess it was about five minutes later, I, I was trying to tell them what happened. And my um, friend said, you have to call the police. So I said, I can't. I don't know what to say. I said, they're going to blame me because they already judging me because of who I am. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid. I was afraid to even call the police because the police were just at my apartment and they didn't do anything. Right. So my daughter, my daughter ended up calling the police for me and she told them my mom's been abused. She's been hit and beat up by her boyfriend. He tried to kill her and she stabbed him and the police came and they didn't say anything, um, ask me any questions. They said, uh, where's Crystal Mangum? And my friend sat over there on the floor, and she just shook her head. And um, the officers came over and put the handcuffs on me and uh, said, you're under arrest, let's go. And as I was in the car, I was trying to tell them my face was hurting, and it felt like my teeth were loose, um, like my front tooth was getting ready to come out. It was hurting really bad, and my lip was swollen. So I was telling the officers that... Um, so there's blood in my hair, uh, my lips hurting. I said, I think I need to see a doctor. And the officer just looked at me and laughed. And he said, nope, you're fine, and slammed the door. And I was just I was just sitting there like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Like, I felt, like, just thrown away like a useless dog. I've just been abused and beat by the one person that said that they would help me and protect me, and then the police are not doing anything and I just thought well there's just nothing left for me and I just mm -hmm. at that point I just felt so helpless and it was even hard for me to cry because I felt like nobody would hear me and nobody was listening and nobody cared especially when the officer looked at me and laughed I felt like there's just no use I'm just like there's just no use nobody's gonna care I mean, I've seen the pictures, and it was obvious that you sustained injuries to your face. Did they ever provide you with medical assistance? No. And, and about a week after I was in county jail, it got worse before it got better. Um, and I asked them to take pictures of it because the bruises weren't really, they didn't really show the full effect until like a week later. Um, as they were healing, they turned darker. And I asked the um asked them to take pictures of it, but they said that they, they to ask my attorney. And at the time, my attorney was Woody Van, and he didn't even see me for another two weeks. <sighs> um, so I was pretty much just in the jail suffering. With no, they wouldn't even give me Tylenol. I mean, they treated me really bad because they felt like, well, she deserves this because she lied on those cross boys. It's just like almost like they already had um, a um, an idea about who I was and that I deserved the position that I was in.
Did you speak with the police at all, or did you just go with your attorneys and stay quiet until your trial? Um, they had me in the interrogation room for about two, hours, maybe three hours. It happened at one o'clock, and by the time I got to the police station, it was about two o'clock before everything was over. Um, so they kept me in the police station until about six o'clock that morning. So it was about three hours that I just sat there. I didn't, I, like I said, I just had no tears. I was in shock. Yeah. And the officer there, um, I, I think I asked him for some water or something. And he said, I can't give you anything. And I said, um, I don't care what they say about you. I think you're okay. And they recorded that one statement that I said in the interrogation room and made it seem like I was nonchalant about it. They played that during my trial. Mm. How long did you have to wait until your trial? Was it 20, 22 months? I mean, were you given bail? They, they first they set my bail at no bail for two weeks because it was, I mean, 48 hours, I'm sorry, because it was domestic violence, they said. And then after two days or 48 hours, it was um, a million dollars. And then after, I think, maybe about six months, I guess, it was reduced to 500000 And then another six months, I think it was reduced to three hundred. Eventually, when they reduced it to 200000 I was able to get out. But how long did that take? About 22 months. That's what I was waiting on. Million dollars, very high. What was the charge? They charged me on April 18th, which was um, what 15 days after the incident happened. They charged me with well, the initial charge was assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill, and that was on April 3rd. But they charged me with a murder charge on April 18th. And in order to upgrade it to a first degree murder charge, they also charged me with larceny of chosen action which was um, due to some money orders that I had in my purse written out to the apartment complex where we live. And so they used that to upgrade it? Yeah, um, they were trying to get the capital, get capital punishment. Um, so in order to, there's a, what's called a felony murder rule. So in order to charge someone with first-degree murder, there has to be um, proof that, well, they, if there's proof that another crime or another felony was, in commission while the murder charge, while the murder occurred, that it could be automatically determined as first-degree murder. So they were trying to find the easiest route to charge me with first-degree murder. I know the felony murder rule well, and I would advocate for getting rid of it or abolishing it at this point. It, it allows for, for real abuses, in my opinion. Yeah. When you did go to trial, um, Crystal, what was your trial strategy? Um, my lawyer was adamant about self-defense. So that's what my attorney argued. And I was asking some people, you know, asking around, like, how can he argue self-defense? And they said, well, in extenuating circumstances, they will accept the self-defense. But it's really hard to prove. So out of everything else, for him to choose self-defense, I think, was the wrong angle. And I argued that with him even during the trial, but he said that was the best strategy because the medical evidence was um, not admissible. His medical evidence was not admissible in court. What did you think, I'm sorry, just out of curiosity, what did you think the argument should have been or your strategy should have been? You have 60 seconds remaining. I feel that it should have been um, 
medical malpractice. Okay, I see. And that was because the hospital um, intubated him incorrectly. Is is that right? Yes. And, and this is, I mean, it's impossible for him to have died 13 days later and for them not to make a connection. You have 30 seconds remaining. The stab wound and um, his death, I feel like I was I was set up by Duke. Okay. Um, can you call me back? Yeah. Um, when is a good time? So let me get right back into it. You were discussing the cause of death of Mr. Day. And you were saying that it wasn't really the stab wound that caused his death, but re- rather it was something the hospital did. Can you just explain that? Yeah. So when um, Reginald was admitted to the hospital, he had two diagnoses. One was the stab wound and the other was delirium tremens. The stab wound was determined to be not life-threatening. The delirium tremens, however, is life-threatening. And that's from withdrawal from alcohol, is that correct? Yeah, he was he was a chronic um, alcohol um, user. He used every day. And like I said, I didn't know that he also was addicted to heroin. So I'm not sure that they treated him appropriately because I know in his medical records, when they asked him if he had had anything to drink or if he had ingested any drugs, he said no. And that was in his medical record. Understood. And I didn't see anywhere where they where they questioned that or went further into those issues or not. So they treated him with Ativan for his agitation. And three days into his hospitalization, he was getting ready to be discharged. And he started getting more agitated. And um, he, his blood pressure dropped. And so they were trying to figure out if he had a plural effusion or an infection or what was causing him to be agitated. So they put him to sleep and they tried to intubate him. But instead of putting the tube into his trachea, they placed it in his esophagus. And whenever you place a tube into the trachea, I know because I read up on this while I was in Mm -hmm. county jail, whenever you place a tube into the um, esophagus, you have to open up the airway. Otherwise, you cut off all the air supply to the body, to the lungs. So they didn't open up his airway when they placed the tube into his esophagus accidentally. And they cut off all of the oxygen to his brain and his, and his lungs. So he was without oxygen for 20 seconds. And at, at that point, it was too late to um, revive his brain cells. They realized the mistake. They corrected it, but it was too late. So the agitation caused them to intubate him. But even with the agitation, he wasn't in a precarious situation where he would have died. What caused him to be in that position was the mistaken intubation. Understood. Thank you for the explanation. What did the medical examiner determine was the cause of death? They said complications. Complications due to a stab wound or complications due to something else? Uh, I think it said complications due to the stab wound. Am I correct that the medical examiner was fired just days before your trial for mishandling other cases? Yeah, he was gonna. He was actually under investigation before my trial, and then um, two days, three days into my trial, they were gonna fire him. But they, they, um, the judge ordered that they 
put that they um not investigate him until after my trial was over. And then afterwards, he was fired. Is that correct? Yes. And he was a star witness at your trial, also. Yes, right. And um, there was an eighteen-page report that the judge deemed relevant to my case concerning his mishandling of the case that he was fired for. There was um, eighteen pages that were relevant to my case that the judge ordered relevant. My attorney had a chance to see them, and he said they weren't important. But I ne- I didn't get a chance to see those records, and I I really feel like that there was exonerating information in those records. You've requested access several times, is that correct? I have, and I was told that they're confidential. Hmm. Have you ever acted as your own attorney? I a couple of times. I just I realized that even though I don't have the expertise. As my own attorney, I was able to get access to certain records, like the Dr. Christina Roberts did a study of Dr. Nichols' autopsy, and she determined that there were flaws in his report. I wasn't able to get her report until I claimed to represent myself. So Mm -hmm. even though I wasn't prepared and I wasn't legally ready to represent myself, that was the only way that I could get access to my, my own records. I see. And your attorneys didn't feel that they could press the medical defense in, at trial? No, he said that they, that they wouldn't make a difference and that they were confidential and the day family would, would be able to contest it. Were you offered a plea deal, Crystal? Yes, I was offered a plea deal for time served and 10 years probation. But I I was so confident that the justice system would finally um, see things from a a factual standpoint. And I guess I was more so not confident but hoping. So you didn't take the plea deal because you wanted to exonerate yourself? Yeah, I was was hoping that the judicial system wouldn't let me down again. But unfortunately, I was wrong. I understand. Do you think your lawyers fully advocated for you? No, I, my case is very political, and I think a lot of people were afraid. I think my attorneys were afraid to lose their job because they work for the state. And the people in power, like Governor Roy Cooper, who was attorney general at the time, was strongly against me. And I don't know. I just feel like people didn't want what happened to, to um, Michael Nyfong to happen to them. And he was just as an example of what could happen. The media, I feel, is is mainly responsible for the outcome of my case as well. And that's kind of what I, I really wanted to discuss, how um, the media has played a big role in suppressing uh, factual information that would help my case and um, releasing information that's false that hurt my case. On October the 25th, Dr. Thurl Wett wrote a report saying that uh, Reginald Day's death was due to um, medical malpractice or accident resulting from um, medical malpractice and not from the sad one. On November 25th, Dr. Wett was able to get a Skype interview with CBS, a 20-minute interview with Bill Young, and they, did, they actually didn't air it because it was so powerful and 
factually based. Dr. Wet didn't provide his his um, individual opinion. It, everything was based on the, the prosecution's discovery, and he came to the conclusion that there were several things wrong with the original autopsy. And Dr. Nichols didn't provide any photographs of the of the supposed injuries and then he said that six different organs were injured and then he changed it on this on the stand he went against his own autopsy report and said that only one organ i think was injured which was his spleen and that he died from complications of the fat wound, that it was possibly an infection which doesn't it's nowhere in his medical records where it says that he had an infection dr wet's report went uh unreported he um he wrote the report on october 25th and to date the media has yet to report anything on dr wet's report on the contrary they did report that Dave's death was a stabbing death. All throughout the pre-trial, the time period before my trial, they reported that uh, Dave's death was a stabbing death. Uh, they reported that they died due to complications of a stab wound. Do you think that's because that's what they were being fed or that's what they were being told? Or do you think they were intentionally painting you differently? Well, I think that the media should report on facts and, and not what they were told. And if they would, would have looked at his medical records, mm. then they would have saw that uh, the autopsy hadn't taken place at the time where they called it a stabbing death. The, the autopsy was still in question. So I think that the media has a responsibility to check their facts before they uh, report anything. But I also think that they were persuaded by those in power to report, to have biased reporting also. There was a, a narrative from the Duke Lacrosse case that I lied about the, the charges, about pressing charges against the Duke Lacrosse players. And so I feel like that the media didn't look at the facts in this case because they went on, on the um, old preconceived notions that I, I was guilty before looking at the facts. I also wanted to say that I think that we're in an era now where the media has a lot of control over people's lives and that they report based on what the mainstream society feels. And a lot of times mainstream society is persuaded by those in power. And I think the only way to actually get women's voices and victims' voices heard is to start uh, groups designed to help women heal. Unless we come together as victims, I think there's really not much that society's going to do to help. We have this, this notion that, you know, whenever a crime is being committed, that people are going to be brought to justice on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we have a notion where we blame the victim for the crime that took place. So I think the only way to cause change is to help women heal. I would agree with that as well, for sure. I actually think that, that there should be groups um, here in prison because a lot of women in prison um, have been abused. 
And a lot of crimes are a result of that abuse, uh, whether it's in the past or, or before they uh, were incarcerated. I think that groups that have helped, that help women heal, a lot of crimes, especially sexual crimes, but also physical crimes, go unreported and they go unprosecuted. Um, for whatever reasons, a lot of times uh, women deal with substance abuse, which I dealt with alcoholism for some time, and it kind of, it clouded my judgment on a lot of things with the Reginald Day case and also with the um, Duke Cross case. And because of that, my word wasn't taken at face value, and I think that I don't think that people should look into a woman's past and what she's done before. I think it should. I think that crimes should be investigated based on facts alone and, and not on mental illness or um, substance abuse or other factors. Because that's when we get into blaming the victim. We teach about this all the time, to be honest. Try to dispel some of these myths or these preconceived notions that people have. And I also know that you're right about, you know... Just statistically, about 80% of women who are incarcerated have a history of being abused. And that's a very uh, high number, certainly higher than the general population. So I agree with a lot of what you said here. When when a crime is committed and people are victimized, like in my situation where I was beaten and abused by Reginald and he didn't receive any any legal ramifications from it, I think that it sends a message that it was okay for that to happen. I think it sends a message that that our legal system is is not fair. As being a being a female and not having a lot of political power or financial means, people don't really relate to fighting or standing up for me. But I mean if we don't stand up for injustice when it concerns anyone, eventually it can happen to anyone. I think that, you know, when African-Americans first came to this country, we were slaves, and now we're free, and things are getting better. But eventually, people that don't stand for good and don't have strong morals or strong values, I think eventually it's just going to get worse, and even worse, where people in power are going to be able to turn against each other. And it's just going to all come down to who has the most money and who's able to convince the most people whether you're right or wrong. And we have a duty, I think, as people to make sure that that the truth comes out. Do you think that you would have received the same trial or punishment if you had not been known as the Duke lacrosse accuser? Definitely not. Definitely not. Even when when it comes down to that night, I don't think that the police officers would have been hostile towards me before they even knocked on the door. I mean, it was pretty obvious that they had already formed a judgment because there were there were at least 30 police cars in the parking lot when I had called for help. So right then I knew that the situation was stacked against me. And then it just all went downhill from there. Just taking back to the trial for a minute, Milton Walker testified at trial, at your trial, that you had previously threatened him with a knife. Is that true? And if not, why, why would he make that up? It's not. Um, Milton Walker is, he's been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And the prosecution knew that. And they played on his, his weakness. And I think that that was very cruel of them, what they did by placing him on the stand. 
they probably threatened him because he smoked marijuana, and they probably threatened to level charges against him for things that were probably in his record. And I think that he did it out of fear. I honestly think that he was being manipulated by the prosecution. Did you ever speak to him after that? No, I haven't. I pray for him often because he, he is very troubled. I also had read that he did not want to testify or he was reluctant to testify. Yeah, it was really sad. He was very confused. It was almost painful, too painful for me to watch. He was so confused and I knew he was being manipulated. It, it kind of made me angry because I knew that the prosecution was so fixed on having me convicted that they would do anything. Did they go too far in the trial? Did they cross lines? I believe so. Um, investigator Bond was an investigator on the Duke Cross case, and her partner was Investigator Hyman. And Investigator Hyman was one of the investigators that really stood behind me. He was with Mike Nifong and saying, yes, something happened. You may not be able to verbally um, talk about what happened because of the trauma, but we know something happened. We have the evidence that's here. So Investigator Bond was upset because Investigator Hyman was fired for trying to stand up for me. So she had a vendetta out on me from the beginning, and she was the investigator who pressed the charges against me for the murder and the um, larceny of chosen action. They had, uh, I think, at least seven or eight police officers testify against me concerning the Milton Walker case about things that weren't true. They said I had a knife in my hand. That was not true. I was nowhere near a knife. I never threatened to stab Milton Walker at all. That evidence should not have even been admitted during trial. As a matter of fact, the police officers in that case were also abusive to me. They pushed me down on the floor. They put their foot on my back. Investigator Titus, or Officer Titus, placed his foot on my back after I told him that I had had uh, a spinal tap. And they were they were very mean to me. You have 60 seconds remaining. All of my dealings with the police have been very hostile when... He kept saying, stop resisting, stop resisting. When I, I never did anything to resist. So, Sounds like you had a rough go of it. Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. I just want people to know that it's important. You have 30 seconds remaining. It's important that the truth comes out about my case because if the truth doesn't come out concerning me, then other people will eventually be affected by it, whether they want to or not. Thank you, Crystal. Thank you for your time. I think we covered everything. All right, Amy, now you've heard the interview with Crystal Gale and I, and I'm sure we have a lot to discuss. Yes. Let me add a few other details, though, because there's a couple of things that I think are important here. First, I'd like to begin with self-defense in North Carolina. There's a lot of caveats to self-defense, the stand your ground laws. But one of the instances in which it is unreasonable to use self-defense is when the person whom the force is used against is lawfully in their own home. And Reginald Day was clearly lawfully in his own home. Meaning that you cannot use self-defense against somebody if it's in their own home. Under the law, it's not considered self-defense. If someone was in... So is that why hers was not considered self-defense? Well, it was one of the things the jury had to consider. Her team said, no, no, we've got to press on with self-defense because Mm -hmm. even though there's this exception, there's an exception to that exception. And there's going to be, this is extenuating circumstances. That's a 
very strange caveat. It's for, a very in their home, in their place of employment, and and I think in their vehicle. Have you heard of that in other states? I've never heard of this before, Neither and it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in of other course. states. I'm surely not an expert. I mm-hmm. mean, the only places I know really well are New York, New Jersey, yeah. and maybe Florida, but but it's just not common. No, this is very uncommon, and I think this was one of the problems initially to self defense. I, I don't understand how this is is she was possible. She was allowed to be there. She, it was her home as well. It was her home as well, but it was his technically and he he was was on he was the one paying the rent or but he's regardless even if it's her home it's his home too so he's still lawfully in his own home but is there not a caveat that says if it's in your own home then you can use self-defense do you see what i'm saying like i'm wondering if it works both ways it possibly does i know this was one of the problems that she saw in using self-defense i just want to point out that as i always tell my students every time you talk about these little intricacies of these statutes it just shows you how you can never know what's going to happen in a case because there are so many exceptions and exceptions to the exceptions. And I think this is a great example of one of those. I mean, I teach that all the time, too. Obviously, when we're talking about like Fourth Amendment, like, yes. you know, good faith searches. Oh, like, yeah. oh, you know, this can't be used except when of it's course. made in good faith or when it's, you know, yeah. uh, an emergency. Of course. Or- Okay, so that's complicated, obviously, and it complicates her defense. And I see, I see the problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why uh, when we talk, when I talked to her, she said, "Look, I was really pushing for the medical defense to come in because I thought it seemed much more obvious that I didn't murder him, that his death was not caused from the stabbing." And she felt that her lawyers should have advocated for her more in that regard. Was she charged with aggravated assault and also manslaughter? She was charged initially with aggravated assault, and then with they a deadly, upped it. Yes, a deadly weapon. Okay. And then when he died. They, they charged up. her with, but did you hear this too? They charged her with first degree murder. First degree. Because they said it was um, felony murder. Um, can you explain the felony murder rule? Sure. The felony murder rule, which I believe is often used inappropriately, says that if anyone dies during the commission of a felony, you two are responsible for, meaning if you are responsible for the initial felony, you're responsible for any murder that comes out of that felony. So the way that they used this against her was that she had money orders. So they were charging her also with like, oh, and that was a felony. And so they used that as the, it was in commission of that felony to charge her but with first degree murder. But it actually, one murder. had nothing to do with the other. And I don't even know that it was a crime. She said that it was money orders like that they used for the house that she was holding in her pocketbook for him. So had it not been for that, they would have still pursued, they would have pursued probably murder too or manslaughter. Exactly. They, they were now going even higher. Because- yes, I, and I mean, I think this only exemplifies the problem with felony murder. I think felony murder is one of the worst rules we have. Mm-hmm. It should be abolished. It should never be used. Yep. It's inappropriately used. And it is, it's an abuse of power. And you heard that she said that it would have been a capital case. That's incredible. I I think that's terrible, to be honest. And I think that was totally an abuse. Overreached by the prosecutor, in my opinion. Next issue, the medical examiner was fired four days before Crystal's trial for mishandling evidence in other cases. They let him stay on, Crystal said, if you heard that, to testify in her trial, but he was dismissed after that. And there was actually talk about criminal charges as well. So they let him testify knowing that yes. this would be his last trial before he's out the door. Yes. And even though they... Did the judge know about this? Yes. And he said it was admissible? There was this issue too. He he said it was admissible, but there was an issue. They had flagged like what he did wrong in his personnel files. And they the judge sealed it, made it available, I guess, to Crystal's lawyer and the prosecutor, but then sealed it and wouldn't make it available to anyone else. So Crystal doesn't even know what the issues were. She tried to get her hands on that report for a while saying it'd be, you know, would have been really important to her defense and definitely to her appeal to know how he mis- he mishandled evidence. And that was the accusation. And then he was te- testifying at a trial. So I think at the very least, 
we have to be skeptical of his findings. I absolutely agree. She was also able to get Cyril Wecht to review the case and prepare his findings or a report with his findings. Did he do it pro bono, do you know? Because I can't imagine he has a small price tag because he is the expert of he experts. Do, he did not do it pro bono. Wow. He, didn't, he doesn't have a small price tag at all. Yeah. But and it, nor should he because he's brilliant. No, for those of you who don't know him, Dr. Wecht is considered one of the nation's and maybe even beyond that leading forensic pathologist. In fact, he was he served as the president of the Academy of Forensic Sciences. Um, he's written numerous books, and he's really just top mm-hmm. of the field. He also opined on like the JFK assassination findings for people who might know him from that. Okay, so what did Wecht find? I was really curious. Uh, I was provided with reports, and I read everything. He analyzed the injuries. He, he had the reports from the Duke Hospital, which is where Mr. Day was being treated and where he passed away. He analyzed findings from the medical examiner. Was he asked to just speak on the cause of death, not necessarily on self-defense, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. Just literally looking at the cause of death. Mm-hmm. At trial, she was convicted of second degree murder because the medical examiner, the one who was fired for mishandling evidence, said the cause of death was complications due to a stab wound, which means the stab wound is what triggered the death. Okay, well, here's what, yeah, here's what Cyril Wecht said. I I was like, I'm reserving opinion until I read what someone who's reviewed everything and someone whose opinion, you know, we can rely on. Wecht said that Mr. Day underwent surgical repair for a small splenic and colon injury. And a few days after the surgery, he experienced delirium tremens, which is alcohol withdrawal delirium. It was well documented that he was um, an alcoholic who was... He was going through withdrawal. He was going through severe withdrawal. He further went on, Wex further went on, that um, in an episode of aspiration that he was having required that he be intubated. But when the hospital staff at Duke Hospital intubated him... They intubated him. They put the tube in the esophagus rather than the trachea. And as a result, Mr. Day suffered irreversible brain damage. He lost oxygen Mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time. And even though they corrected it, it was a huge mistake. It was too late. When they corrected it, the oxygen had been lost. He had brain damage. He went on to, I guess, a coma or, you Mm -hmm. know, when you, you know, he he, he was still living, but he was no longer able to function. It just occurred to me that the family would have likely filed a wrongful death suit, but they had someone else they could have easily blamed for what happened. Crystal. Right? Crystal. But I'm wondering, did they file a civil suit against the hospital? I think that there was civil suits. I'm not sure who filed them, but I I definitely know that. I read something about there being civil Mm -hmm. suits. I'm just not sure who that came from. Despite changing the intubation to the trachea, Mr. Day did not recover and he died again 13 days later after his injuries. Dr. Wecht, his final conclusion, he took the official position that the cause of death was complications related to delirium tremens, including aspiration due to alcohol withdrawal related to chronic alcoholism, and that the manner of death was accident and not homicide, which was vastly different than what the medical just to play devil's advocate i'm at this point i do believe that crystal should not have been charged in mr day's death but to play devil's advocate had it not been for the stab wound he would have never been away from the alcohol and never suffered the tremors hence never needed the intubation i think that's a very fair point so uh, this is where things get a little tricky that's also an issue when you so when i'm teaching forensics that comes up with cause of death yeah. um, cause of death is the what what the event that precipitated it and was there usually they ask so was there an unbroken chain of events yeah. or was it broken so in yeah. this case he actually explained wecht explains in his report this was a broken chain of events because he was recuperating and he was recuperating nicely. 
and he would have. But he could have been home drinking had it not been yes. for her stabbing him. Yes. So I know it seems I mean, like he could have been hit by a bus. He could have. But you're absolutely right. He would not have been in the hospital to have been intubated, exactly. likely had he not been stabbed by her. However, officially, if you're relying on cause of death and manner of death and he's declaring it an accident, he's also saying that the hospital is negligent here. Yep. That's just that's his opinion that if you had to blame someone, you'd blame the hospital. That's what Wecht is saying. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple other things from Crystal's interview, though, that I wanted to talk about things that I was certainly bothered by. And one of those was the treatment of her by the police officers uh, upon her initial arrest. I'm not sure if you heard. Yeah. I, I saw the pictures. We had looked at the time. Crystal was injured. You could see. I mean, yeah. were they the type of injuries that look life threatening? No, but she I could see. I remember mm -hmm. um, a fat lip and there were there were other obvious things that had happened. She looked very disoriented. It is not uncommon for someone to be arrested and receive medical treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but she it's was also not uncommon for police to treat women of color, especially women of color who might be sex workers like this. And someone who they also, they knew who she was. Yep. And you heard that. They mm -hmm. knew who exactly who she was. So I think that's one of the things that Crystal suffered from notoriety. But then mm -hmm. she also discusses it. And she's a black woman. Yep. And she's a sex worker. So she's going to be like the, you know, mm -hmm. she's triply damned. Yep. And that really played against her. But she, she wasn't offered any medical treatment at the time or ever, which was one of the things that really bothered me um, about this case. Let's discuss uh, some of our opinions here. Now that we've heard from Crystal, uh, now that you've heard some of the reports, I also read up just so you know a little bit more about the intubation and the mm -hmm. damage. And, you know, it's pretty well established in the literature that this was a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that he would be alive, but for not this mistake by the hospital. In my opinion, I really believe Crystal Gale was acting in self-defense in fear of her life. The description of how much it hurt when she felt her hair separating from her scalp mm. I don't know why, but it just made me it made me think that she was just terrified. And mm -hmm. she's talking about my kids, my kids. I don't know if you recall from the original episode, but Reginald Day admitted to hitting her. Mm -hmm. He admitted to starting this violent attack on her. And I think he was telling the truth. But I don't think she stabbed him. The, the, where their stories diverged was he said that he, he had done this, but then he was backing off and she was so angry she came at him and stabbed him. Mm -hmm. Her story was that he was so angry, he was still yelling at her. She was hiding behind the mattress in the bedroom. He was throwing knives at her and then he came at her to like actually mm -hmm. attack her. And that she was laying there as he was on top of her trying to choke her and she had a knife right there and stabbed mm -hmm. him in the side. Her story seems to fit more with the evidence to me than his story, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Of course, I can't be sure. But I think that even when we did this original episode, we were like, look, he admitted to this violent attack on her. Isn't this self-defense? I mean, wouldn't this be a clear case of self-defense had it not been her? I believe so. I think who she is is what made this turn into not self-defense. I'm going to say this. I'm not going to like opine or, mm -hmm. or give much about the Duke LaCrosse case. I have no idea. I just want to be clear whether Crystal was attacked or not. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of this case as a wrongful accusation mm -hmm. and um, that the, the Duke LaCrosse kids were kind of exonerated. Mm -hmm. But my opinion may have also been colored more by Mike Nifung's mm -hmm. illegal actions and not Mangum's testimony. Mm -hmm. Remember, Mike Nifung was the prosecutor who withheld... Brady violation? Or? Correct. Um, and it was it was really extreme. So I'm not sure if my opinion is steered more by his actions or by hers. I know yeah. there were inconsistencies with her statement. So I'm not going to say. I have no idea. And I'm not even going to uh, attempt a position on that. I do believe that the stigma attached to Crystal, though, was the reason she was treated so harshly by the police and prosecutors. 
And regardless of her arrest, at the very least, the police should have offered her medical treatment. She was clearly hurt. This would have been the standard for anyone else. And in the end, I believe that Reginald Day would not have been in the hospital again if it not been for the stab wound. But I think that his cause of death was absolutely an accident due to medical mistakes and not a homicide. Those are my final conclusions on the case after re-reviewing all the materials I have and after interviewing Mangum. I'm still open. Amy, final thought. What are your thoughts on this? I seem to be a little more hung up on not the self-defense because we know self-defense is tricky. We saw that in the Nikki Adamando case. We see it a lot. It's, it's very upsetting because we see a lot of domestic violence victims that then use self-defense and then we see the battered women syndrome. And, you know, this case, it's just so hard to talk about that because it's hard to know without being in the room what really went down. True. But I do think that even though you just said, had it not been for the stabbing, right, then he wouldn't have, you know, been in the hospital and then he wouldn't have needed to be intubated. However, I don't think if I was on the jury, I would have been able to convict on second degree murder. I think maybe aggravated assault, possibly. That was the initial charge, Amy. It was aggravated assault, which they upped it to murder when he when died. When he died, yes. But I would, I don't believe that they had the right to up it to murder. And I also... If I understand it correctly, had it just been aggravated assault, she'd be home by now. Absolutely. And now she's facing, what, another decade or so in prison? Well, she got 14 to 18 years. Okay. She served about seven now. Okay. I mean, I don't think so they're going to release be. her early. Yeah. I think at least seven years is what she's probably facing because she'll get out at a minimum of yeah. 14, I'm thinking. And she did, sorry, she was offered a plea bargain and she didn't take the plea. You heard that, right? Yes, so she that's... was offered a plea deal to time served. And that was after she had been in jail like 22 months, she said. So it was right around she then. She could have gone home to be with her children right then. She could have gone home. She was offered uh, time served with 10 years probation. She said she was adamant about not taking it because she was innocent. She thought the system was going to get it right well, this time. Unfortunately, a lot of innocent people take plea bargains thinking that everything will work out the way it should, but obviously it does not. I'm sure after the fact that she was convicted and sentenced 14 to 18 years, she wished she would have taken that plea. I mean, I, or maybe I, not. Yeah. Maybe she still stands behind it because she's an innocent woman. I don't yeah. know. I wonder if her lawyers were strongly advising her to take the plea. I would imagine they were. I think they were, absolutely. And most lawyers would. That's, yeah. you know, that was... Uh, I mean, good for her for standing by principle, but it, look where it got her. Yeah. I'm not sure that this was justice served by any measure, to be honest. I don't I don't really believe that punishment of someone who I, I think was acting in self-defense is appropriate. Um, well, I know I don't believe yeah. that. But whether or not uh, we can be certain about it, I think that the murder was an overreach. And I think the prosecutors punished Crystal for being Crystal, Crystal. Gale. Yep, yeah. I agree. All right. Well, that's everything I have for today. Thanks for joining us for this update. Thank you, Megan. I hope we get to see some justice for Crystal. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash women in crime.